Orpheus and Eurydice. It's a pretty well-known Greek myth. Orpheus is a musician. He's a poet. He plays the lyre and the lute. He has an insane gift to charm people. His music is so clear, his verse is so touching. He's also this incredible adventurer. He travels with the Argonauts on their journey to find the Golden Fleece, just to help his friend Jason get back his rightful throne. Orpheus is a good guy. And he falls for this gorgeous, wonderful woman Eurydice. Weirdly, there's not much lore about her. But whatever, soon they're madly in love. They have a beautiful wedding, he plays the lute and the lyre and sings, and she dances around him in the meadows. Of course, like with any great myth, there has to be some kind of horrific tragedy, and it comes when Eurydice is bitten by a viper. She dies soon after their wedding, and Orpheus, the powerful figure of charm, song, and verse, is broken. Here, the only person on earth worthy of his gift, the only one he loved enough to make his song feel worthwhile, she's gone. All he can do now is play his lyre and sing sad love songs. And when he weeps and sings, the world weeps with him. All the gods and people and trees and rivers hear his song and move and shake, opening a hole in the earth itself, deep down into the underworld. Orpheus travels down to this land of the dead and pleads with Hades and his wife Persephone to let Eurydice return to him. He plays his lyre and sings and begs, and finally, Hades gives in, under one condition. On their return trip out to the world of the living, Eurydice must walk behind Orpheus, and he can never look back. Now, Orpheus is a patient guy. He thinks he can do this. He walks and sings and plays, but he can't hear Eurydice's footsteps behind him, and so he starts to worry. What was this return for? Life was torture without Eurydice, so he journeyed down to death. But if she can't really come back with him, what is he returning to? The exit is in sight now. But Orpheus can't stand the thought of returning to the world and seeing that his beloved was never behind him, that he had been tricked. So, in his panic, he turns around. Eurydice was behind him the whole time, but now she vanishes into smoke. Orpheus gets back home to an empty world. He has made the impossible journey, returning from the land of the dead to that of the living, and that return is all he has from the trip. He has no Eurydice, but he has come back. The people around Orpheus regard him with wonder. He must be blessed by the gods to have been able to return to Earth from Hades, the place from which no one returns. He's a hero, and his poetry is read across Greece, and the people sing his songs. I think Orpheus in that story in many ways reflects how we feel about coming back to things, how we cope with this nature of return. You aren't always returning home or returning to work or school better than you left. Sometimes returns aren't good, they're just necessary. And sometimes it's better to be on solid ground empty-handed than to be aimless, wandering, displaced. Sometimes, even when we don't want to come back, there's someone we love who makes returning worthwhile. So tonight on News & Culture, we talk about returns, things borrowed and given back, people who find themselves on long lines of exchange, people who find themselves in old spaces, and those who feel drawn to earlier times. 
Returning isn't easy. Producing this episode, News and Culture's first since COVID changed the world as we know it, was certainly an endeavor. But returning, even when it's hard, can be fruitful and give way to so much more you would have never known had you stayed away. From the WPRB studio in Princeton, New Jersey, this is News & Culture. I'm your host, Adam Sanders. Tonight's stories. Mountains of books return to the Firestone Library at Princeton University every day. But what is it like to be on the other side of that desk? News & Culture meets the people who return your late books to the shelves and keep our great repositories of knowledge alive. Since the start of the pandemic almost two years ago, record high numbers of American employees have quit their jobs in what has been known as the Great Resignation. So how have employers managed to get people back into the workforce? And how do essential workers feel about going back to their jobs? News & Culture finds out. The holiday season has come and gone, and gifts, wanted or not, have been exchanged. In a particularly odd Target Returns line, two News & Culture reporters find out exactly what draws people to bring something back to the store. And the people who have put down their laptops and returned to the typewriter. Is this truly a better writing experience? News & Culture finds out. WPRB wants you to know about the Attic Youth Center. The Attic Youth Center is Philadelphia's only organization exclusively dedicated to lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer and questioning LGBTQ youth, and has served over 10,000 individuals in nearly 30 years of existence. Their mission is to create opportunities for youth to develop into healthy, independent, civic-minded adults within a safe, supportive community, and to promote the acceptance of LGBTQ youth in society. And they need your help. To find out how you can support their amazing work or get involved, please visit atticyouthcenter.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio. Journalism. <laughs> this is what return sounds like. Firestone Library here at Princeton University is one of the largest open-stack libraries in the world. There are literally miles of shelves where patrons are free to browse. And there's some pretty cool stuff on those shelves. I may or may not have dropped a book published in 1840 one afternoon while trying to find a source for a paper. Don't worry, it was fine. But today, since we're talking about returns, I sat down with Joan Martine at Firestone. My name is Joan Martine and I'm head of Firestone Circulation Services. If you've been to a library, you're already familiar with circulation. It's where you check books out and return them. Um, I think of it as managing, from my point of view, the biggest, um, well, the busiest public service area in Firestone. But what actually happens when you return a book to Firestone? So the book's just dropped into the return bin. So I'm going to reach in and get books out of the return bin, put them on the counter, um, 
and then what we do is we stamp dates out of the back. Something I've always found cool about Firestone is that even though they've got a computerized system, they still use the manual date stamps on the little slips in the back of books, as if they're using a manual card catalog. So when books come back, Joan and the circulation staff actually physically stamp solid-colored ink over the most recent date as a way to cross it out and make a physical note that the book's been returned. Um, and we then discharge it in our system. One of the books Joan scans sets the printer off. She explains that that means that it needs to go to another spot instead of just going back to the shelf. A slip like this um, would be, could be something that's going on our hold shelf. Um, so from this point, we would put the slip in the book and the book would then go back to our hold shelf. Okay, if it, and I will show you where that is. We'll walk back there. Joan takes me into that mysterious place that library patrons never get to see, beyond the desk to where the books on hold go. So just so for the listeners, mm -hmm. so they know, so Joan and I are standing in between and there's all of these books and they're on their side and there are these pieces of paper with people's names sticking out. And some of them are green and some of them are white. Um, it looks very cool um, and sort of leafy like the, with all of the, <laughs> yeah. and all it's, the slips. And it's, it's alphabetical, obviously, and we have it spread out so that it's really easy to handle, you know, when we get large numbers of books. It stretches really far. What I'm learning is that for books at the library, the return is just the beginning. And not all the books that get returned to Firestone actually go back to the shelves. Some of them go to a mysterious place called Recap. We check out books from our Recap storage facility, which is out on Route 1, which is this fabulous book. Um, I call it like a book warehouse. Very cold out there. <laughs> Everything's temperature controlled. They use forklifts to get the books. Um, it's, it's a fascinating place. So out there, we have a um, huge number of books. And then we also share it with New York Public, Columbia, and now Harvard. And so when patrons are looking for books in our catalog, you will see things from those institutions and you can request those. Listening to Joan describe Recap to me, rightly or wrongly, I imagined a mythical Costco, but instead of industrial-sized mac and cheese and toilet paper filled with books, I've never been there. I have no idea if that's actually what it's like, and it's probably not. But I just wanted to let you know that that's what it feels like in my head. The words forklift and book aren't really supposed to go together, at least to me. Anyway, back to Joan. And then this is the reserve. Um, the reserve is in the front also and back here. We have some videos over there, and then we have trucks of books that we're processing. Um, these are the way the books come to us from the um, recap. From recap, these are what we call recap cards. So um, they look like shelves on wheels. They they are shelves on wheels. They don't look like that. That's what they are. Yeah, yeah. Just beyond the forest of hold slips, there's a labyrinth of shelves on wheels, and some regular shelves too, filled to the brim with books. And it's a Wednesday afternoon. Joan tells me that sometimes there are even more. So we, we get some, there are days, Mondays, it's usually our busiest day, that we, I feel like we're swimming in books. <laughs> there are so many books that arrive from Recap and from the pickup service that, you know, there are just massive numbers. And so the hold shelf goes all the way back to here. Oh, wow. In the back, across from the hold shelves and the Recap carts, someone's scanning in books that are on return carts. But the books had already been scanned when they were initially returned, like Joan showed me. So I wondered why they were being scanned again. Um, so if something doesn't have a hold on it, um, it goes on the black truck there. 
and um, from there it comes back here and it gets discharged all over again because I want to be sure that every single book that goes back to the stacks is not charged to a patron. Okay. That's really important to me that, that we don't dare let anything out of our department that's right. still charged to a patron. So because we, if that happens, they could be blamed for it being lost, right? Mm -hmm. Or something like that? Yeah. Overdue, they would receive overdue notices, that kind of thing. Yeah, gotcha. So that's what's going on there. When books get returned, it isn't just about where they go, but the experience of the patrons that use the library. But a lot of these tasks seem pretty repetitive to actually do. Scanning in book after book, putting things on shelves, or pulling them for patrons. I asked Joan what makes working in circulation fun. To me, when we get really, really busy, um, like, like a little while ago, we had seven or eight people standing in the line, and they all came at once. And so when something like that happens, the staff, we all kind of jump up and all go to the front desk and wait on people as quickly as we can. And that feels really, it feels really good because we feel like we're really helping people and we're, we're providing a good service. And we, the staff and I, sometimes after something like that happens, we'll, we'll kind of joke that like, what, what was that? <laughs> Where did all these people come from all at once? Um, so, so we do, we do enjoy that. Um, and it makes us feel, um, it, it makes us feel good. It makes us feel really good. So the next time you go to the library, maybe you'll remember what happens after you make the return. It's just the beginning for the books. For WPRB, I'm Hope Perry. Go and there's like literally no cashiers. There's departments closed. This is Anthony Sanfilippo, a New York native who commutes in every day to be the store director at the Princeton McCaffrey's. He sat down to talk to WPRB about what it was like working through a pandemic and transitioning to a new normal during what some have termed a great resignation. That is coming up today on WPRB News and Culture. Last November, 3% of Americans quit their job, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. That includes 6.9% of workers in the accommodation and food service sectors who quit in November. So what are companies doing to get these workers back into the workforce? Well, we kind of do for our existing employees, um, we pay our existing, if they bring in um, like a friend, we have a lot of kids that if you bring in a friend, we pay them. If they last three months, they get a chunk of money. If they last six months, they get a second set of money. Well, actually that was an existing program, but they bumped up the amount paid out, you know, a lot. We don't uh, holiday bonuses you now for employees. We pay people like they wear masks, you know, even, even was, in Princeton it was mandatory and we were still paying people to wear masks. A new report released by the ADP Research Institute revealed that as of December, the U.S. wages for existing job holders rose a record 5.9%. Unsurprisingly, though, given the continuing rates of job turnover, the wages for those who switched jobs increased by an average of around 8%. According to one survey, as of 2018, two-thirds of workers said they wouldn't ask for a raise, but there are signs that this is changing. People have come up for wage increases. If they're not happy, they're, for the first time, like, you will see, you know, employee will kind of come up and ask you for something. And sometimes you can call them out on their bluff. 
for this time now if someone comes up to you and tells you they're not happy and they need a b and c or they're going to leave they're going to leave if you don't give them a b and c because there is there's they can anybody can go anywhere prioritizing employee appreciation has also paid off a recent survey found employee recognition was listed as the most important to 33 percent of employees but 65% of those same employees haven't received any appreciation for their work within the past year of the survey being conducted. And managers are starting to feel the necessity of this action for their jobs. I think that's the things that keep a happy employee. We have employee appreciation lunches. We buy prizes, we raffle them off. So sometimes it's yeah. not always, people always go to the money. And I'm not saying money is a big part, you know, yeah. it's, it's the main factor. I appreciate that. And it forces you, you have to remember to do the little things for employees. When I see a good job done, I have to make sure I thank an employee. I have to show my appreciation. I have to, even sometimes giving, like, if an employee does some, uh, has a good interaction with a customer and you witness something, like giving them a free lunch. For San Filippo, understanding why people haven't left involves going back to the early days of the pandemic and the workplace culture he managed to cultivate. So it wasn't, I don't think there was any fear in the store because everybody knew they had a job to perform and that's what we did, you know? Was there times that I think everybody would like to be home quarantined with their family like everybody else? Yeah, of course. And it's not just on a managerial level. Other employees share San Filippo's concerns and dedication. Um, did you have any nerves about coming back to work or working during the pandemic? Absolutely not. Um, being an essential worker, that's what we do. That was the assistant manager of the prepared foods department after I interrupted her checking in an order. I think we had, of all of our employees, I think this store, I only, I only had like 10 or 15 that decided to stay home and quarantine. And I believe all of them were elderly. You know, some of them didn't return after that. But far as um, the majority, a lot of people stayed on. They did not decide to quarantine, then, you know, um, and most of the elderly actually, some of the elderly actually came back after everything settled down, you know what I mean? Today, that attitude seems to have helped the store handle the great resignation and get people back in the door. There are plenty of volunteers to go over and help out the bakery. If there's a shortage on cashiers, you know, there's plenty of people in the store that know how to ring. So we will go up and help ring and help that. Though, According to an earlier Gallup poll, 56% of U.S. workers said they worked remotely during all or part of the time uh, due to COVID-19. And expect things will be, continue to change, even if we have one rather unique example right here in Princeton. And even here, the little things that have changed stick out. People's eating habits are different now. So I find that the customers in the very beginning were very, very scared, very nervous. Um, about purchasing food. It seemed like most of them just wanted to buy their own meats and things and cook at home. We used to do a very good job with our um, prepared food items, and we still do awesome job with our prepared food items, but for instance, hot bars, salad bars, and not because people don't want to eat them or they're afraid or this and that, but people are not working. They're working from home, so they're not coming in here for lunch anymore. We learned how to cook. So people are now stop buying more meat and more fresh produce and, you know, looking for different recipes. And they're actually taking the time and learning how to cook now instead of always on the run. So that's definitely, you know, one thing we had to adjust to.
is people's shopping habits have changed. Even though things have started to calm down, people are not as panicky, the people's shopping habits have changed. While McCaffrey's might offer some insights into the ways one store is adapting to new workplace expectations in the COVID environment, the variation is endless. And new stores are popping up every day with new help wanted signs, offering all sorts of incentives as we strive to return to normal. San Filippo offers one perspective though. Things have not returned to normal. Everything has changed. Nothing is the same. And perhaps that's the way it should be. There's something about a world where people are empowered to ask for raises and cook more meals at home that seems worth striving for. This has been Alan Plotz for WPRB News and Culture. This is the sound of Target. Probably similar to Dick's, HomeSense, TJ Maxx, and Michael's, all of which we are kicked out of for various legal reasons in the pursuit of journalism. Specifically, here are the sounds of the Target return aisle at 3 p.m. on a Monday afternoon. Hi, excuse me, do you have a minute for the radio? I know. No, okay. English is bad. <laughs> <laughs> have a good one. Sorry. No, it's all good. Hi, excuse me, do you have a minute? No, no, no it's okay. Hi, do you have a minute? Okay. Yeah. Hi, excuse me, do you have a minute for the radio? No, I'm sorry, I'm in a rush for a meeting. No oh, okay, problem, sorry. And we know for a fact that that woman was not in a meeting, as we saw her an hour later sitting outside the dicks in her car. In fact, some people weren't even there to return stuff. But that didn't stop us in our relentless pursuit for the truth. We continue to ask the hard-hitting questions. Uh, are you returning something today at Target? No, I'm not. Oh, okay. Well, what are you doing at the returns counter then? I'm uh, picking up an order. Oh, and what's the order, if I may ask? Uh, cleaning products. What kind of cleaning products? Uh, I believe dishwasher detergent, um, spray cleaner, uh, stuff like that. After two and a half hours of searching for the truth, we finally reaped the fruits of our labor when Target associate Kara Applegate shared their side of the story. They finally delivered the truth behind the many lies. My name's Kara Applegate. And how long have you worked at um, Target? Um, since last June. And have you always worked the returns counter? I work kind of everywhere in the front, so returns, drive-ups, everywhere over there, yeah. Do you have any cool stories about things people have returned? They had several. People, some guy tried to return a bag full of pomegranate seeds, <laughs> just the seeds. And he was like, we opened it and it was kind of gross. So here are the seeds. And I was like, no, <laughs> I don't, we didn't let him return it. Um, somebody else returned a box with rocks in it instead of the item. Um, what was the other thing? Somebody returned something from the online store, which is different than what you can buy in store. And then she yelled at us for an hour because we couldn't take it back because of something. Kara told us that Target has a serious problem with shameless serial returners. There are people who buy like $200 of clothes and go home and try them on and then come back like the same people over and over. And I don't know why they don't just use the fitting room because it's open, but they'll just return like most of the clothes. But we didn't see any of them. 
Fortunately, we did see a number of return transactions take place. First up, we met Nicole, and we could barely see her behind the giant box she was trying to return. I was actually returning a crib that I got from my baby registry. It's a mini crib, and it's too small. <laughs> so I just want to get a bigger crib. If that box contained a mini crib, one must wonder, how big is Nicole's baby? We met John, another returning customer, in a power stance, holding a giant box of Kotex pads. And personal care products for my wife. We quickly discovered that journalists were hiding in the Target return aisle when John turned the tables and started interviewing us about our time at Princeton. We're freshmen. We're freshmen. We're freshmen. Oh, the new recruits. The new recruits. They sent us go. to Target. And did you, are you pandemic freshmen or were you real freshmen? Real freshmen. Real freshmen. So you didn't take you no. had your pandemic year last year mm -hmm. right, yeah. in high school. And where is home? Baltimore. New York City. In this line of questioning, we soon discovered that John himself had two children at Princeton. I love if they work for the radio station, but they think they're way too cool for that. John's kids, if your dad is cool enough to return your mom's pads to Target, then you are cool enough to join WPRB News and Culture. After a long day of reporting, we left the Target with two minutes of tape, a pack of gum, and laundry detergent. And we finally understood the true meaning of return. Whether it's a mini crib for a massive baby or a giant box of pads for John's children's mother, customers can return products of all kinds at the Target return aisle. Unfortunately, dear listeners, you cannot return the dissatisfactory time you have spent listening to this episode of WPRB News and Culture. We want to extend a big thank you to Waldemar, our Uber driver. So basically what happened is that he picked up a woman whose car broke down on the side of the road and was gonna drive her to AAA. But that's when we decided to go to Target. So he called me and said, asked me to cancel our Uber, but I didn't wanna pay the $5 fee. And he, in understanding of that, left the woman on the side of the road to fend for herself so that he could help us get to Target. We would also like to thank Kara Applegate for being the only employee to speak with us, John for offering us a ride back uh, that we should have taken him up on, and Dominic, our final Uber driver, who returned us to the WPRB studio. I'm looking at my computer keyboard right now. It's something I don't often think about. The keys and their layout are pretty ingrained in my memory as a lifelong computer guy and a denizen of the 21st century. But it's not especially logical. By my right pinky, there's a shift key. What am I shifting? And one up, well, there's the return. It starts a new line, or it clicks OK, you know, affirms a command. It's not going back anywhere. What's returning? To answer that, we have to look at where this QWERTY layout came from, the typewriter. See, on a mechanical typewriter, pressing return was literally a return. You're sending the paper in the carriage back to its point of origin, starting a new line. On mechanical typewriters, like the classic Remingtons you might see in a movie, it's a physical lever on the left side. The return key on the far right of our modern keyboards comes from electric typewriters, where this is a very luxury feature your typewriter had a little motor that can move all by itself. Writing today can feel mindless. 
an extension of your consciousness running through your fingers onto a touchscreen or laptop keyboard. Mistakes are quite easy to fix. There's no running out of paper. But what if we return to the origin of the return key? What does a permanent physical composition add to the writing experience that a computer could never replace? Would typewriting make me more intentional of a writer and thinker? Would a typewritten letter have more composed and elegant thoughts than a simple text message would? Today on News & Culture, I interview people who somehow in the 21st century found themselves at a typewriter and see how this old device can make us learn some new tricks. This is Nolan Musselwhite. I write letters with typewriters. Nolan is a devotee of the manual typewriter. It's a manual typewriter, no electric, fully manual. Asking him about his rationale, Nolan gave me an answer that I too had thought of. What if the typewriter can make you more intentional in the way you write? Well, there's something about the typewriter that strikes a, a balance, I think, between writing on a computer or a digital device or a tablet or whatever you use, text-to-speech even, um, and writing with a pencil or pen by hand. It first forces you to be careful and deliberate about the way you write, which is, I think, some, one of the problems with writing digitally today is that we just have a tendency to kind of write and then overcorrect and overedit, and we can say, oh, we'll just go back later and edit it. With a typewriter, you don't really get to do that. Revision on a typewriter is nearly impossible. There are ways to fix minor mistakes, but they're hacky. To write on a typewriter is to write knowing that what you are putting down on the page cannot be removed and that its ink will stay there permanently. So it's more raw and more immediate in that sense. Your writing is, is your writing. It's not writing after revision and revision. I asked Nolan, what about the typewriter was better than writing by hand? It avoids the, you know, what can be kind of the imprecision or sloppiness of just writing with a pen or pencil, which I've, I've found can just be, you know, you're just writing quickly, it's straight from the mind, um, you know, it's a little more immediate when you're writing with your hand. So I find I can just run on or say too much or get disorganized in my thoughts. So I found the typewriter, you get a something right in the middle. Now, this is not the 1950s. There are not typewriter supply stores on every street corner in Manhattan. So I asked Nolan how he found his, how he got his and kept up his typewriter. You can order them online. Um, I actually got mine from Amazon. I get my ribbons from Amazon as well. There's... But Nolan is human, just like us. Um, well, there's a couple things you can do. So if it's a small mistake, sometimes I do the sloppy wedge, which is you just, you can kind of adjust physically where the typewriter is, is typing on the page. I go back one space and I hit the equals key just to strike out the letter. And I sometimes do that if I'm writing quickly, it's sort of informal. If it's a little more formal, you have two options. You can either white out your mistake, um, which sometimes isn't possible because I'll write on yellow paper sometimes. This reporter found this specific remark from Nolan incredible. Not only was he writing letters and other forms of communication on a typewriter, he was using purposely aged-looking yellow paper, in his words, for the telegrammatic quality it provided. You know, it's about the authenticity of it. It was Quintilian who said in his, his work on rhetoric that it's important to be deliberate, be precise, when you're first starting writing to go slow. I asked Nolan what specifically he was writing with a typewriter. What kind of writing drew him to this old mechanical device? Almost always letters. Um, you know, I find anything longer than that. We run into the mistakes we've talked about, which is um, if I want to go back and edit it, if I want to change ideas, change order, that's hard with a typewriter, but it's perfect for letters. So, you know, sometimes three, four page letters to friends or colleagues or teachers sometimes. Um, this is back in high school. You would send your teachers typewritten letters on yellow paper? I would. Bold, okay. It seems that Nolan's perspective on using the typewriter is that it allows for a separation between the real world and one's writing. 
one is able to immerse himself into the ink and page without needing to think about editing, without needing to think about battery life. The typewriter writes, and it does one thing really, really well. It's almost a bit of magical realism, putting yourself back in the 1940s to write a letter and then returning to your world. I think the typewriter summons a sort of portal to antiquity, or at least to you know early modernity that you sometimes miss with other types of writing. So I think it can sometimes lend, lend messages, uh, uh, almost telegrammic, telegrammatic aspect to them that can, you know, sometimes be fanciful, fanciful, but sometimes be fun. After some begging, Nolan agreed to share one example of a story of a letter he wrote on his manual typewriter at home. I worked in South Africa at a brewery in Cape Town for a few months. Um, this is about six months ago now. And shortly before I left, I had about a five-hour period in D.C. when I was, you know, connecting on my way, on my way outbound. And I was able to send a, send a friend at West Point a quick letter. Um, and it kind of came in the form of almost like a telegram. And I think the advantage of that over a postcard is that, it, is that it lets you write in a way that's, you know, not only explores some kind of fun aspects of writing, is a little more fanciful, but also is more deliberate, like you can actually say something. I asked Nolan if other Princeton students could expect to see him with his typewriter on campus, hopefully next semester, if he brings it with him. Maybe, we'll see. It's a, it's a big thing because it's a manual typewriter, so it's kind of this large, um, to carry it, there's sort of this like plastic briefcase that it comes with, but we'll see. Maybe, maybe I'll ma have it make the trip up. Whereas Nolan utilized his typewriter to write letters, our journalist Alan Plotz here at WPRB had a different purpose for his. When I was at summer camp, I was very annoying, and I brought a typewriter because I couldn't have my computer, and I wanted to type up like an alternative newspaper because they wouldn't let me publish world news in the camp newspaper. My handwriting was terrible, and nobody could ever read it. So I was like, I'm going to ask for a typewriter. And my parents, being the loving parents that they were, they got me a typewriter, and I brought it to summer camp with me. Most campers at Sepoy Camps Across America do not have the time nor energy to produce alternative newspapers, but Alan was different. We would have this hour after lunch every day that was like our nap time, and I would type on my typewriter, um, and I would type up like the news stories that I got in my mail order New York Times subscription that would come four days late. Alan didn't see what Nolan saw as, you know, the intentionality of a typewriter as positive. He saw the difficulty of using it to really be a detriment to the practicality of his camp publication. It was a manual typewriter, which made it, one, incredibly loud to use during my cabin's, like, nap time, siesta time. It also was incredibly hard to use, just like you had to really put a lot of force into everything. And honestly, it probably would have been less work to write up all the articles by hand. But there was something that made me feel very special about being that kid who brought the typewriter to summer camp. Alan also had to figure out how to distribute this newspaper, considering it was underground and an alternative to the oppressive camp publication. I would type it up once, and then I would put it on the bulletin board, news board, that they had for every like unit. And I would put it up there until it got taken down, and then I would work on the next issue. I asked Alan if he considered himself to be a sort of Robin Hood or bandit journalist. No. I would consider myself a kind of annoying kid who thought he was smarter and more special than he was and didn't like all of the summer camp activities. I asked Alan if he would ever use a typewriter here at college. It takes a lot of work just to type on a manual typewriter and I think I would be a lot less productive. I had one last question for our Robin Hood typewriter camp journalist. What was the name of your newspaper? 
I think it was just like alternative camp news or something. Alternative camp news with Alan Plotz. And now here he is, a journalist at WPRB News and Culture from WPRB Princeton. I think these two stories show us the different ways that returning to old technology can affect you. If you're a Nolan, then using a typewriter might connect you to your loved ones who you're writing to. Perhaps the tangibility and the intentionality of your writing brings you closer to loved ones far away. Me? I think I'm more of an Alan. Just the, the noise and the difficulty of working on a mechanical typewriter I think would get in the way of my productivity, especially when writing these scripts. For WPRB News and Culture, I'm Adam Sanders. And that's our show. News and Culture is directed and hosted by Adam Sanders. Tonight's show was reported, recorded, and produced by Hope Perry, Alan Plotz, Kat Ivkovich, Charlie Nurnberger, Adam Sanders, and me, Anna Salvatore. Our art and social media director is Isabella Escamilla. Our director emeritus and technical advisor is Oliver Wang. The theme music for our show is Montanita by Ratatat. The songs included in today's episode are Alone by Triad, Head Phonetic by Revolution Void, Distance by Manu Cornet, Sing, Sing, Sing by Benny Goodman, Good Mood by Manuzik. News and Culture is produced in Princeton, New Jersey by WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio. Take care and enjoy your evening.